Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with ex-fitness coach at the Vancouver Whitecaps and owner of Athletic Lab, Mike Young. Okay, welcome to episode three of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Again, the podcast goes international, uh, coming from uh, with Mike Young uh, over in the US of A. Um, welcome, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Not a problem, not a problem. So, anyone that doesn't know Mike Young, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background, who you are, where you've been, and what you're doing at the minute? Uh, I, I come primarily from a uh, track and field background, but uh, my love is sports science and applied coaching. So I have been in school for a long time or was in school for a long time, bachelor's degree in exercise physiology, master's in coaching science, doctoral degree in biomechanics. I continue to do some ongoing research both for uh, companies in terms of product development, national governing bodies, in terms of applied research for athletes, elite Olympic athletes. Uh, but my primary focus is on truly applied sports science as well as coaching. So I am, I run a training center, own and run a training center in North Carolina called Athletic Lab, as well as work with athletes both on site and off site. Have a handful of elite track and field, uh, winter slide sport athletes, and then have worked with uh, professional soccer or football players, uh, as the case would be, for the past four or five years as well. Uh, most recently, working with the Vancouver Whitecaps of the MLS for two years. Cool. So how did that transition come from track and field to football slash soccer? Well, I I have a, a strong sports science background, so I'd work with a handful of sports across the board, and I kind of take the philosophy of uh, track and field somewhat being the mother of all sports. And yeah. <laughs> I say that not so much in terms of uh, a conceited way, but think of it in terms of the physical development and what athletes and other sports want in, in their physical development is to run fast and jump high and throw far and to be able to run for a long period of time. And uh, those are secondary qualities somewhat in, in other sports, but that is the sport of track and field. So mm-hmm. in terms of uh, my background, I've been able to bring that to other sports as well. And I, I really lucked into working with uh, high-level soccer. I coached a handful of professional soccer players and worked with a second division team here in the U.S. Uh, that, that team was very successful, uh, won a couple championships, and that basically brought me up to the MLS I uh, had an opportunity that I couldn't turn down to go there and essentially leave my business and go on alone for, for two years to Vancouver. And uh, the, the testimonials that I had received both from this team that was very good at the second tier level in the U.S., mm-hmm. as well as uh, some individual players that went on to play in the MLS and elsewhere, uh, really helped me out. So. They, they ran really fast and tended to do very well on the fitness tests at their various clubs. So it got me some looks and I've, uh, along the way have been a student of whatever I participate in. So that's been soccer. So I've kind of immersed myself in football slash, uh, soccer over the past five years. And this area where I currently live in is really 
in the U.S. about as uh, football friendly as you can get. Okay. We have some of the biggest collegiate programs in in the U.S. are from five and ten miles away, and the youth development system here is really outstanding, at least in terms of uh, what you'd see in America. It's it's really on the forefront of American youth football development. So what what college so, what college are we talking about there? University of North Carolina. Oh, okay. Their men's programs are you know perennially successful. Uh, North Carolina State University, Duke University, Wake Forest, all of those are within about 40 minutes of where my training center is. Okay. So we get a lot of those collegiate athletes or athletes that want to move up to that level at the youth level. And, you know, that just kind of trickles down and trickles up. So we have, there's a, a great culture of youth soccer and, and uh, amateur soccer here. That, that feeds into future professional players that has really helped with uh, my business as well as direct the course that, that I would go professionally as well. Cool. I mean, we, we've just, you discussed a little bit about your, your own business, but we'll come on to that a little bit later. But when it comes to working with individual football players, are they, did they kind of seek you at your place or were you kind of actively seeking to work with Football players, soccer players. There's a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, I I got my start in higher level or professional football with uh, the coach of the club. Just came in and asked if we could help. He had seen he had seen what we had been doing with some youth soccer players. Mm-hmm. We have uh, an academy system here with, and we had we had aligned ourselves with that academy system. And he had heard about what we were doing. Uh, he was in need of a fitness coach and uh, a place to, to train his team. So they started coming in. We worked out a, a great relationship where I was on their staff as the fitness coach and their strength conditioning coach. And then uh, it kind of blossomed from there. Some of those second second division players, a lot of them actually, uh, almost half the squad ended up playing at MLS or higher level. So it really became a strong testimonial to what what we were doing tactically, technically, and so forth, and and physically, where we could take these players from a second division and put the bulk of them on first division teams in the in the U.S. Very good, excellent. So, with your with your work at the Whitecaps, what can, what's your kind of role day to day? Are you out on the fit? Are you out on the pitch? Are you in the gym? Are you kind yep. of managing? systems so right now i'm actually working mostly on an advisory role with the white caps okay i have gone back to my business uh as of about one month ago and what i'm doing is helping them to manage the systems that i put in place okay so i had a handful of uh hey i had a handful handful of uh sports science initiatives there where they needed to have someone who could run them other than myself and my assistant. But uh, so my, my role was multifactorial. And I think this is what you're increasingly seeing in, in the field of the fitness coach. You're not just a coach. You are a applied sports scientist and uh, a liaison with the medical field. Yeah. So, you know, I was orchestrating and coaching all of the, all of the uh, strength conditioning programs. I was, 
putting together the on-field fitness work with with the uh, partnership of the the coaching staff, the technical coaching staff, uh, incorporating it within small-sided games. I was monitoring player load, uh, monitoring wellness throughout the course of the week, doing various uh, analyses like body composition and specific gravity of urine and so forth, uh, as well as overall an analytics of match play, physical load in a match play, physical load on a practice, that kind of thing, and then putting together a player monitoring system that could be used on a day-to-day basis to assess a player's readiness in training. Okay, so I mean, we have, I have a bit of a, a knowledge of, you know, um, multidisciplinary teams over here when it comes to kind of elite football slash soccer, but I don't really have any, any knowledge of what kind of medical teams are behind the scenes in the MLS. Are we talking big teams behind the scenes or is it, you know, what kind of staff do you have, did you have at the Whitecaps? I think with the Whitecaps, we had a little bit different than some other teams. Okay. I know our medical staff was very, very extensive Okay. Uh, in that we had five full-time medical staff. Right. And... Two, I believe, were physiotherapists, um, athletic trainers, and so forth, as well as part-time chiropractors and physicians. And so medically, we had an extremely extensive staff. From the performance side, it was myself and my assistant. Uh, and we were, we were kind of tasked with liaising between the technical staff and the medical staff. Yeah. Uh, we, we tended to be more on the technical staff. But uh, because we were so integrated with the sports science team and the medical team, or we were the sports science team yeah. for, to some extent, and the uh, directing the medical uh, and coordinating medical with the training and overseeing some of the some of the uh, injury uh, return to play scenarios, okay, yeah. that uh, it was all a fairly integrated process. Uh, but I, as far as what we had, I think it was pretty comparable to what you might see in uh, in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our medical staff was probably a little bit larger, from what I understand. Okay. Uh, our performance staff might have been a hair smaller from, I've seen some places have as many as four coaches. Yeah. Uh, we just had two. But uh, overall, the team was probably quite good in terms of uh, personnel, how many, how many people we had and the resources and so forth. So was, our team was pretty comparable. I don't think that's the case for a lot of clubs, though, in the MLS, at least not yet. Okay. So thing, so the Whitecaps are kind of in front when it comes to that kind of thing? There's a handful of clubs uh, that are that are doing great jobs and are okay. kind of bankrolling uh, yeah. a more comprehensive, integrated service. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's not the norm yet. It is increasingly becoming the norm, and I think teams like the Whitecaps uh, – are are on the forefront of that, but uh, it's it's not the norm yet. So, with your kind of advisory role now, who's is it your assistant who's kind of dictating what happens actually on site, or have they got other people no. now? So there are uh, they have hired a strength and conditioning coach. One of the technical staff that they hired is a former fitness coach. Okay. Uh, so he kind of crosses both lines. He has his UEFA A license or UEFA Pro license, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an analytics person now in place as well as a uh, player monitoring 
sports physiologist on staff. So okay. they've actually uh, put in place several other pieces of the pie that, that I was covering all under my umbrella while I was there full time. Okay, so uh, just get into the little bit of the nitty gritty. What? How do you when you were there and what you've put in place since with regards to individualizing training for each specific player in the gym, out on the pitch? How how did you go about that? So it was actually quite difficult um, okay. to, to individualize everything, but yeah, I yeah. and it wasn't done fully fully individualized. Okay. What I would say though is what we tried to do was put players into buckets, and that's a that's a term that I've kind of stolen from uh, Dave Tenney, a guy I have a lot of respect for. Uh, he basically what I would do is put guys into if we have thirty men on the roster, I might put players into six or seven different buckets. And each of these buckets have some commonalities, whether it's strengths or weaknesses or injury profiles that we might need to address. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, those those six or seven buckets, they have more shared traits than than uh, uh, than differences. Mm -hmm. And that way we can individualize based off of based off of that. I think that the need to individualize based on a totally individual basis, like one person has a totally separate program from another, yeah. is highly overrated. Yeah. Uh, human physiology is not so different that every single person adapts differently that, than the others. Research is pretty well documenting that we apply a certain stimulus and you can expect a certain adaptation. And although there are individual differences in terms of their strengths and weaknesses and injury profiles and mobility and even positional demands, uh, I don't think there's a need to make things completely individualized. I think it's more appropriate both from a logistical standpoint yeah, and uh, coaching effectiveness standpoint and just simply a matter of providing the best possible coaching service and what is actually necessary to athletes to, to split it up, up into several different groups rather than think that it has to be uh, uh, completely individualized by the person. So the template itself may be, you know, 80% the same for for every guy. And then it's that 20% difference that is that is what is individualized and that is different for the six or seven buckets, so to speak. I understand. So what, what kind of – do you get a, a good buy-in from the lads with regards to systems that you put in place? Or was it initially a bit of a struggle or how did – It was initially a struggle for okay. sure. Uh, I think uh, – I've worked with a handful of sports and of all the sports that I've worked with, uh, I'd say football uh, or soccer has the uh, least connection, the lowest connection or buy-in with physical development of any sport that I've ever worked it with. Uh, I think that in other sports, the benefits are very, very clear cut, especially in a sport like track and field yeah. or weightlifting, you get stronger, you get faster, you're better. Yeah. And, and in a sport like, uh, football, where you can have 11 men on the pitch and there's strategy and there's tactics and there's getting lucky and, and so forth, you can hide a lot of uh, inadequacies through team play and getting lucky and that kind of thing. Uh, but it doesn't make it any less important, I don't think. So buy-in was initially a little bit difficult, but uh, it's taken about – with the two clubs that I've worked with, it takes about – 
it takes about a year or less, say say six months to get 100% buy-in. My second year with the Whitecaps, we had unbelievable buy-in. Very few people complained. A lot of people loved going to the gym, loved doing the extra work. Uh, we had a handful of case studies where guys would stay and do extra a lot of times and go over and above prescription. And they were absolute rock stars in terms of their, their fitness, fitness qualities and capacities. So uh, we had great buy-in, I think. And it's really just part of the coach's responsibility is creating a culture where people understand that this is an important part of the game and that the fitness coach is trying to make them better. And as long as the fitness coach can incorporate things in a way that is applicable to the sport, applicable to the position and within the context of the season, that uh, I don't think you'll, you'll have any problem with athletes buying in. And when that happens, then that's when you have your real success. So do you think it is the, foot, the, the football slash soccer culture that you've changed rather than any specific, um, you know, way in, in getting that buy-in? Yeah, that might be the case. I mean, some of it is just, is really just a matter of uh, education, I think. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I think, as I said, in, in the sport, you can really cover up physical deficiencies uh, through a variety of other means, whether that's tactical, technical, getting lucky, strategy, whatever. And that's not necessarily the case in other sports. And, you know, you'll have guys in in football where they may not be monsters in terms of their physical capacity, but they're still able to succeed at the highest level because of mm-hmm. because of their brain or their 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 technique. I think those days are increasingly passing where you're gonna find someone that is in a world truly world class athlete or has maximized their physical potential Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's still possible now and as a result of that people use those case studies and say well how about this guy or that guy he doesn't go to the gym or he doesn't he's not all that fast but look at how good he is and uh, I think those days are passing but they're still present Mm -hmm. where you know you, you can use these case studies of guys that are succeeding in spite of their physical capacity but just like every other sport the bar is being every single year and the one who's leaving out one element of their lost your mic a little bit hi mike hey sorry about that sorry, sorry about, about that. that no no problem so yeah with regards to the culture it was the, the changing culture at the white caps that gave you the impetus to get that buy-in yeah yeah i think so and educating guys and showing them what it takes to be the very best and, you know, to being quite frank with them and saying that, you know, this can be your advantage. Uh, Maybe have been playing since the time they were five and six years old. Uh, You know, North America doesn't. This is what happens when you call on the side of the world. Hello. Yes. Hi, Mike. There we go. Yeah, sorry. It was, um, yeah, the interview with Mike Boyle that I'd uh, listened to and about okay. soccer's uh, supposed obsession with monitoring and not getting back to the basics of getting strong, etc., etc. Could you uh, just give us your opinion on that little little statement from him? I, I think that I would largely agree with it. Yeah. And I see that having built a very extensive monitoring system. Yeah. Uh, I would largely agree with that and say that there are a lot, a lot of people out there, it seems, in this field who have 
just kind of got caught up with bells and whistles and putting together some really fancy monitoring protocols uh, and lost sight of the fact that at the end of the day, you are a coach. And if you are good at your job, you should be able to do almost everything the monitoring system does with your own intuition and uh, observational skills. And, you know, we, we put together a very extensive player readiness system that used a lot of sport tech and uh, monitoring protocols. And what we used to validate it a lot of times was just asking guys how, how they felt. And for the most part, it was spot on. Uh, There's a couple areas where I think that monitoring is key. One is to provide quantitative support for your intuition, especially if you have to talk to the, the manager or the head coach Mm -hmm. and you have to provide evidence for why you're suggesting what you're suggesting doing so in a very clear and concise way and visualizing data can be very, very useful. Visualizing quantitative data can be very useful. Also, uh, the one way we use it as it, as a motivator. So for example, we would monitor, we would monitor the physical load during a practice. We could see what their physiological load was in terms of their heart rate, as well as what their output was in terms of, uh, how much they ran, how fast they ran, how many changes of direction, that kind of thing. So by looking at those two things in real time during a practice on a day-to-day basis, we were able to determine whether someone was lazy, whether someone was overworked, whether someone was very fit, whether someone uh, you know, needed to do extra work, that kind of thing. So in those scenarios, it can be very, very useful because what we found was you know, just because someone goes through a 90 minute session doesn't necessarily mean they're all doing the same thing. We would see differences in physical output of up to 40 to 50% sometimes on the high end between the top guy and the bottom guy. So, you know, you can't just say, oh, we did a hard session today and, and chalk it up as being a hard session for everyone. Mm. Uh, another way, another area where I think that player monitoring is pretty useful is uh, by equating, making all players, uh, how should I say this, providing a uh, training environment that is a, a stimulating training environment for all players. So, for example, on a roster of 30 guys, you have the 11 that might start every week, and then you have seven or so that might be uh, coming off the bench. And But they, they did a mini taper going into the game, just like the 11 that we're going to start, but then perhaps four or five of them don't play. So uh, those guys kind of get caught and they're lost in the shovel. And then you have another 12 guys or so that didn't taper for the game, didn't have a mini taper for the game, and they they maybe practice really hard. So you have all of these different scenarios, and even within those three cases, you have guys that are injured and you have guys that are coming off the bench and playing 40 minutes. And you have guys that are sitting on the bench and not playing at all. So you have a lot of different scenarios and you want to try to provide a, a training environment where players are not getting left behind, mm-hmm. so to speak. Because those guys that are on the bench, uh, the guys that are on the bench are the closest to being on the field, right? If you are, if you are in the seven substitutes, that means you're one injury away or, uh, 
a red card or whatever from getting on the field. So they need to be ready. And they're also the seven guys that are chomping at the bit to take someone's place on the field. But if you don't give them the training environment that would allow them to physically to overtake that the player that is on the field, then you're shortchanging them. So you want to give them every opportunity to at least stay on par with the people that are already in front of them at their position. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is to be able to assess the, the training and the game load and then be able to equalize or provide a, a normalized training environment for them even when they are forced to have, say, mini tapers because of their po- potential of playing in a game. Uh, but there's a lot of scenarios like that where guys could just get left behind or they could get overtrained or whatever the case is. And we need to account for all of that. And just taking mental notes in your head is really, really hard, especially for me. So creating a system where you can, you can just input data on a daily basis and know where everybody is creates a longitudinal record that can be very useful for providing a, a training environment that will allow everyone to get the most out of their training. I totally agree. I was one of them, tw- them 12 that you mentioned that were training, well, supposedly training hard, not involved in the games, and then expected to every four weeks turn up to a reserve game and perform, even though, like you say, you'd tapered for the game on the Friday, knowing that you're never going to be involved. Um, but these are the days before the GPS came, uh, became, you know, popular. Right. Um and then you'd have the weekend off and then three weeks down the line expects to play a game, which is just never going to happen. But yeah. Um, so I'm just looking at your um, your squad list for this year. You've got a couple of English, UK-based guys. How are their... When they come in, what are their, what's their buying like compared to your more homegrown guys? Are they kind of clued up on what's expected, on targets, on that type of thing? Oh, is it very similar? Some of them are quite resistant, I will say that. Okay. Um, not just from the UK, but from elsewhere in Europe. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I think what we have in the US that really helps with this is our collegiate system. Yeah. So in the collegiate system, it's not the best for tactical, technical development. But what they are expected to do is go to the weight room three or four times a week and go through a very extensive physical training. So where we may be lacking in terms of the technical, tactical development, a lot of these kids that are coming out of our collegiate system are quite far ahead in terms of their their understanding of training and movement patterns and uh, experience in the weight room. Mm. So they tend to have bought in. They didn't have a choice when they were 17 or 18 and they went to college. So they, they're accustomed to it. Uh, meanwhile, you're – uh, players, international players, they, especially your, your older guys, upper twenties, mid thirties, they, they may have come from a developmental system that really did not emphasize physical development at all. It was just completely integrated with the training, uh, the, the technical, tactical training, and maybe even shortchanged a little bit. Mm. And as a result, there's, there's a weaker connection between the need for that type of training and uh, succeeding at a high level. So, you know, we've, we have guys that have come from, from very strong physical development academies or clubs over in the UK and elsewhere, 
and the buy-in isn't great. But I would say in general, the the American kids or the kids that have come through the collegiate system, they at least have a lot of experience with what is expected for high-level physical development. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that isn't necessarily the case for some of your European or South American players. Which makes your job a hell of a lot easier if you do have that. Yeah, yeah. So just moving on to what we discussed right at the start with your business, your athletic lab. Tell us a little bit more about that, how it came about, what kind of things you're doing at the moment. So we are a uh, training center okay. that coach. We work with everyone from youth all the way up through general population. The idea is that we're uh, performance-based training. So whether you are a whether you're a youth athlete or a Joe Blow who sits in an office for 40 hours a week, you will train like an athlete all the time. And uh, appropriately so, we we try to map out everyone's training and individualize individualize it as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with a handful of professional athletes, both in terms of uh, American football uh, and uh, soccer, and we have an elite level track and field club that trains out of here that I coach. We've had Olympic athletes from slide winter slide sports and major league baseball players and have a semi-pro basketball team in here. Uh, so we try to keep everything very high level, both in terms of our training that we provide as well as our customer service. The facility is one of the better facilities, I believe, in uh, North America. Mm-hmm. And we have a sprint track, and we're installing uh, a, a large turf infield. Um, it's, we started it as a small venture, it's always been my dream to do this, and it's kind of grown. We're five years in now and looking to expand. It uh, has really taken off. We still work with a lot of a lot of uh, soccer football guys because of where we are and because of my, my track record in soccer. I've actually brought my assistant in Vancouver back here, and nice. we, have several, we have another collegiate, former collegiate soccer player on staff here. We have a very high standard for experience and expertise to be on staff so that you know we're we're really kind of on the leading edge with that no one you can't get hired just because you knew someone or you just got a certification or you just had the experience you really have to have it all is is kind of something we really push for including uh higher level education if that's possible Mm -hmm. in terms of master's degree or some of our some of our coaches are We'll be pursuing uh, doctoral degrees at some point. So we really try to keep it super high end and provide a, the highest quality service we can. It sounds brilliant. I mean, I've been to um, a couple over in the UK. I mean, we don't obviously don't have the capacity, uh, the space, the amount of people you guys have. But they, a couple that I've been to have focused on general population and then brought in our identified athletes to kind of boost their you know their look but it, is that the same with you guys or do you That's kind of the act, other way around act, other so way around okay our first year um largely because i started in elite level or i when i started the business full-time i was primarily dealing with upper level elite level athletes and a lot of them followed me to the area or kind of moved to the area to to continue training with me so uh, initially, almost all of our client base 
was professional athletes. Right, right now we're about 50-50. And we take what's called uh, what I have deemed the Ruth's Chris principle. And I'm not sure if you have Ruth's Chris over there, but Ruth's Chris is one of the highest level steakhouses in in North America. Right. And uh, fairly pricey. And if Ruth's Chris sold, Ruth's Chris sells their steaks for probably, I don't know, 30 pounds. Uh, $60 yeah. is a higher level steak. And uh, if they wanted to sell a hamburger, they could sell a very expensive hamburger at Ruth's Chris, no mm -hmm. doubt. But if, on the other hand, McDonald's, which you do have, if McDonald's wanted to sell a filet, filet mignon, they couldn't do it very well. So we've taken this approach where we're going to start from the top, provide an elite experience for our elite athletes, and there will be general population that want to experience that. And it's worked pretty well for us. Uh, in the market research I've found is that the people that start on the low end and try to go work up yeah. have a difficult time doing it because they brand themselves more as a general population place. And no question you need to have the general population. Uh, I think both from a, from the standpoint of, you know, we're in a, we're in a, especially in North America, we're in a uh, health crisis here. So I yeah. like working with, Working with these people, I like working with people who are active and fit and performance oriented. But also from the standpoint of those are those are a lot of the people that will pay your bills. So some of our some of our Olympic and elite athletes, they're not high dollar clients. Mm. Uh, you know, so we need to find a way as a business to subsidize that. Uh, and the Olympic and high level athletes, they they bring us exposure. They bring us they allow us to do what we want to do, but. They're not going to be, uh, you know, they're not, they're right now, they're about 50% of our revenue. Okay. Uh, so, and I think most successful places I've seen have to go that route because otherwise, um, you know, it makes it very, very difficult. Similar to a, to a vineyard where they release a reserve bottle of wine that's a couple thousand, thousand dollars, uh, 500 pounds, say, and they, you know, that's not what's going to make them the money, but that will help them sell more of the, the, the 10 pound bottles. Of, yeah. Yeah. You know? I understand. So we've taken that same approach really. Okay. No, it's really interesting. And I'm just looking at the time and I've kept it for 35 minutes. So I'll, it's really good stuff. It's really interesting, but I'll, I'll round it up and I'll just say, uh, if anyone wants to, um, I know you're quite active on social media getting uh get into contact with you on social media where can people find you mike so it's pretty simple I, I have a very active twitter account it's just at mike young yeah at mike young and then uh obviously i'm on facebook uh mike young there as well at mike.young i believe is my facebook name and we, i have websites at fit for football f-u-t-b-o-l.com cool. and elitetrack.com which are both provide training in sport conditioning research and coaching information all for free, not trying to sell any of it, just pursuing my passion of sports science and coaching education. Free is always good. Yep. Free is always good. But yeah, uh, just like to thank you again, and I'll um, I'll sign off there and say thank you for listening to the podcast, um, and thank Mike again for, for popping in and having a chat with us. Thank uh, you, Robert. I'll chat with you soon, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.